Hi, Secreters. So I uh, hope you enjoyed the first uh, video and the other kind of introductory videos on my YouTube site and podcast. Um, we are going to break the book up into different sections of study. And I wanted to start with the Japanese hint book for the book, The Secret, A Treasure Hunt. So when The Secret book was published in 1982, uh, we have discovered it was not as popular as what Byron had hoped it to be. And so he needed to devise a way to get another few casks found. So he decided to do a Japanese hint book. From what I understand, this was a task he took on by himself. None of the original artists were brought in for this book. Uh, so I think Byron was in a little bit of a panic mode. Oh man, here it is. I've hyped this book up. I went on all of these publicist-induced meetings and given multiple interviews about this book and to get it some attention. And then all of a sudden, it's not selling. So in order to recoup money for his publisher, uh, probably obviously for his travel costs, at that time in 1979, 80, 81, it was typical of a publisher for the author to travel, publicize the book, and to also have a person with them to kind of oversee them and where they go, almost kind of like a, a wrangler, so to speak, make sure they don't spend that much money on the company credit card, etc., etc. So when we are thinking about all of that, we realize there probably was a need to recoup money. So when the hint book was created, um, it was done in Japanese. And we discussed that because it makes the most sense to be able to publish something this way and even in another country to not infringe upon the copyright laws and the contracts that he would have signed on American soil. So when the Japanese hint book came out, he was kind enough to put hints inside this book that was a replicated story of the secret book. Obviously published by a different publisher, was a Japanese publisher, um, and at that time, in the 80s, and even before that, there has always been a struggle and a fight to protect written works of authors. Uh, one of the most profound fights about publishing rights was actually started with Washington Irving, but before that, the English writers um, 
Charles Dickens and many others who were irritated that some of their works were being reproduced and they weren't getting compensated for it or they were getting reproduced in other countries and they weren't getting compensated for it. Several uh, times, even Melville, Washington Irving, um, you know, I think Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, many others had traveled even back and forth even to Europe to try to fight this in the court systems. So I find it even up until the 80s when as the decades progressed we got better about protecting people's copyrights, right, or their their written works with their own copyright. It's not perfect by any stretch of the means. There are still many instances even today you could see um, certain artists get sued for this other artist using their material or I gave them this song four years ago and now it's all of a sudden a number one hit and they've given me no credit for it. So we have to keep that in mind when we look at the Japanese hint book because Byron was trying to protect the integrity of the secret book that he created which has very special meaning for him and also not get sued. So, there are many different um, versions of the hint book translations. And I know some folks in our group are lucky to have a friend who's a Japanese interpreter and they've studied and looked at some things and I've come across another copy that I felt made a little bit more sense um, to understand. So with that being said, I'm going to read the very beginning portion of this translation. And here it goes. So postscripts and hints. Ready to accept the challenge of this treasure hunt? This treasure hunt is mainly divided into two sections. The first half contains the main story of the treasures that the fairies brought. The second half introduces the descendants of the fairies that came to the new world. Together, they create a humorous allegory of today's society. Now, let's take a look into each section. In order to find the locations of the treasures that the fairies hid, we must first read the poems. Of course, the 12 poems conceal critical hints for the treasures, so instead of reading it as a poem, you should study it like a coded message. Coded message. However, there is a problem. Each of the 12 poems can be found in different ways and read in different ways. For example, some prepositions are placed so that it is ambiguous whether it is describing the previous line or the next line. When I asked my American colleague, he couldn't be sure either. In addition, even for a single word, it is hard to choose and to work to choose from all the Japanese words that it could translate into. Therefore, this book keeps the original English text. 
and the Japanese translation as footnotes. So, for Japanese readers, in parentheses here, for Japanese readers, even with the translations, these poems are overwhelming. So I had an international phone call with Mr. Price where he gave hints specifically for the Japanese readers. Of course, these are not hints that can easily lead to answers. Sometimes these provided hints might taint your imagination or make the endeavor even harder. Well, we know about that. However, hints are hints. Using them as starting points, you will get closer to the fairy's hidden treasures. Now let's use our brains. Interesting. Now let's use our brains. I have said all along, Byron was so clever and enjoyed so much the twisting and changing of words, their meaning, their spelling, whether it was incorrect or had double meanings. These were all really important to remember whenever you are trying to decipher. So when I go back and he says, in order to find the locations of the treasures, the fairies hid. Okay, before that, he says, the first half contains the main story of the treasures that the fairies brought. The second half introduces the descendants of the fairies that came to the new world. So, first section, fairies came, brought their treasures. Second half, we meet all the descendants of said fairies that came to the new world. But I notice here that he doesn't say fair folk. He doesn't say fair people. He only says fairies. Those are things to really think about when you're looking. Even when you look in the back of this book and you see the descendants that he talks about. Um, some of them are listed as a fairy, like the Chicago World's Fairy. Okay, that's a fairy. It says there in the hints, we're looking for fairies, right? Torontoger? doesn't say she's a fairy. Toll trolls doesn't say that those are fairies. Job goblins. So what do you infer when you read those descendants? What do you infer when you read about the fairies in the beginning of the book and who they were and the jewel that they brought? So for instance, um, in this hint book, um, poem one. So the author says, these hints are about the original English wording, not the translation. Good to know. Because uh, we know English wording can be pretty critical in understanding, you know, if a Japanese visitor was coming to play the game in America, they're going to say, okay, I need to look at the English wording. Got it. So, poem one. I often wonder, as you do too, what poems are for what immigrant group? 
This is where I feel sometimes they can get very overwhelming because I believe that some of these poems infer one immigrant group but a different color of gem even though it's specified for that painting. For instance, when you look at the Boston painting and he talks about Paul Revere. Paul Revere is a descendant of a French Huguenot. Okay, there's French connotation there. Could be very confusing for some if they are trying to presume that that means it's an indication of, oh, this is a French immigrant meaning. So, I do believe, as I've said before, exactly what John Palancar said, that they get harder with each solve. And I think that this is why. Because some of the inferences in some of these verses infer one immigrant group while trying to provide you the answer for the gem. So, for example, let's look at the hint book for poem one. Okay, he only gives, and I say he, Byron Price, only gives a couple of hints for poem one. He says, here are the hidden meanings or hints. Line nine, the water veers, the water shooting to the sky. Is it a spring or a fountain? What I find interesting about that is he's probably indicating that it is an actual fountain. Then we have line 10, small of scale. Small in quotation marks means small of size, but how about scale? Even in Japan, we say, quote, scale model. They use the English phrase here. So scale model. That's pretty indicative of he's implying small-scale model. Pretty vague though still because you think what is he implying? I know a lot of people think that this is the Houston painting and it's implying the train. But could it also be something else? It could be the train. I mean the number does match but also the number also matches for the size of certain parks. Um, potential zip codes mixed around where if you think it's in a large city but it's in a small city. <laughs> it could mean a few things. So, but then going on, lines 16 to 17, what we take to be our strongest tower of delight. This is a quote from a famous book. What is that book? So we know that the book is a Herman Melville book. We know that Herman Melville is from New York. We know the book is called Pierre and the Ambiguities, which Pierre was a Frenchman. The person that he wrote about in this book was French. So then we have to sit and think, okay, if he says this particular quote, when we look at the quote in its full context, um, and I and I actually have it here, and I will quickly look it up for you. But it says, 
What we take to be our strongest tower of delight only stands at the caprice of the minutest event, the falling of a leaf, the hearing of a voice, or the receipt of one little bit of paper scratched over with a few small characters by a sharpened feather. So when we look at that, and he's talking about sometimes, even when you're on a walk in the park and you see the leaves falling and fall, or something of that nature that you can delight in something that is just the most simple, the falling of a leaf, a simple note that's been written to you, just a few sentences, talking about the utter delight or joy that you feel whenever you have had that moment. So, do we really think that this poem would be tied to a Persian cask? What would be the Persian tie to a American New York author writing about a Frenchman? The last line. There's the spout. This relates to line nine, the water veers. So obviously it would mean dot, dot, dot. It would mean a fountain. So these are things I contemplate when I'm researching these verses. And I try to find not just the quote, right? You're not, you, you don't just read a piece of the quote. You read the whole quote and you try to process what that meaning is. Because it obviously meant something to Byron. And so it meant enough to make it a critical hint. So then we think about, in the complete quote, a feather on scratched paper. Well, what era were we using a feather, a quill, and ink? Talks about Thomas Jefferson's inkwell, right? Talks about there was a fairy hiding, particularly a French fairy, hiding in his inkwell. In the Mater Damon. So here we have French, 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 all over the place. What is the French tie to Houston? Is there a French tie to Houston? Are we supposed to read about the French in Houston? But it's actually just a Persian gem because it highlights the immigrant group that's there. If so, where is the French park? Because Langoni was found in an Italian park. That park was named for Mr. Langoni years before 1976. So we have this Italian name. Before that, it was Huapolo Park. Then you have the Greek gem found in the Greek gardens. You have the emerald that's the Irish-Scottish gem that was found in Grant Park. And Grant was obviously an Irishman. Irish and Scottish. Interesting story about Grant. 
when he went to visit the first president to ever, one of our, the first presidents to ever visit Ireland, uh, the southern portion of Ireland did not want him to visit there because they did not appreciate that he did not hold fast to his Catholic values and that he allowed the understanding and the acceptance of other faiths. And he didn't exhibit to them strong enough Catholicism. Those are all really interesting things to note and to understand where these gems could have been situated and why. So I'm going to leave you with that for today. And we'll go to the next poem tomorrow. We'll start with poem number two. I also have broken down the solve poems as well so that we can try to understand why he didn't give hints for certain poems or what the solved hints really represent. So I hope you'll tune in. We'll go to poem two tomorrow. Have a super day.